The subject matter of this podcast will address difficult topics, multiple forms of violence, and identity-based discrimination and harassment. We acknowledge that this content may be difficult and have listed specific content warnings in each episode description to help create a positive, safe experience for all listeners. In this country, 31 million crimes, 31 million crimes are reported every year. That is one every second. Out of that, every 24 minutes, there is a murder. Every five minutes, there is a rape. Every two to five minutes, there is a sexual assault. Every nine seconds in this country, a woman is assaulted by someone who told her that he loved her, by someone who told her it was her fault, by someone who tries to tell the rest of us it's none of our business. And I am proud to stand here today with each of you to call that perpetrator a liar. Welcome to the podcast on Crimes Against Women. I'm Jan Langbein. I'm the CEO of Genesis Women's Shelter and Support in Dallas, also the co-founder and CEO of the Conference on Crimes Against Women. Today, our guest is amazing. She is an author and an attorney. She's an art historian whose amazing groundbreaking work in the study of visual perception through art has become a method of investigation for law enforcement and has actually launched a movement that she describes as the art of perception. Internationally acclaimed, Amy Herman leads seminars and trainings for a wide range of professionals, New York City Police Department, the FBI, the French National Police, the Department of Defense, United States State Department, Fortune 500 companies, first responders, military, and intelligence communities, just to name a few. In a recent publication of her book, The Visual Intelligence, Sharpen Your Perception, Change Your Life, This book enables people to see what matters in order to better investigate crimes and criminal behavior, resulting in better outcomes from the investigation. This is our first podcast on the Crimes Against Women series, and I cannot think of a more qualified person as we launch our series. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Janet. It's just an honor to be here and to have the opportunity to reach out to so many of the stakeholders in your conference. It's It's a real privilege, and I appreciate being invited to kick off. Ah, We are thrilled. And I want to jump right in, and I want to talk about the art of perception. Mm -hmm. Um, This uh, this art of perception sort of sounds like mindfulness, or or is it something else entirely? Explain to us what is the art of perception. Sure. The art of perception, while it's the name of my company, it incorporates the idea of visual intelligence. And to give you a sort of a platform to understand visual intelligence, We all know, especially now, we are bombarded with information. We are absolutely bombarded from every side, what we should be doing, what's happening, and we feel like our heads are on a swivel. And visual intelligence is my methodology to give people the tools to process that information. And when you use the term mindfulness before, it got me thinking, what I teach people is visual mindfulness. How can we be more aware of what we see and what we observe? And in the end, how can it help us make better decisions and more informed decisions? Well, how, how did you even get into this work? How did, you, how did this come to you? How did you start? You know, life uh, takes us down a lot of different paths. And I tell people that I'm a recovering attorney. Uh, I had studied art history undergraduate. I went to law school thinking that would be the way to go. And I knew six months in, this wasn't for me. But I continued to practice because being a litigator brings good skills. And five years in, I said, there has to be a way to bring art back into my practice. So I left private practice and I started working for an art museum. And while I was there, I became involved in museum education. And I started this program at the museum where I worked, the Frick Collection in New York City. 
And the program was for medical students only. It was very straightforward. The idea of let's take medical students out of the clinical setting, out of the hospital, out of the medical school, bring them to an art museum, teach them how to analyze works of art. So theoretically, when they go back to the hospital, they'll be better observers of their patients. It was not my idea. They were doing this at Yale and with Yale's permission, they let me start a version of it in New York City. And everything was great until I was out to dinner one night with my friends. And I was telling them that my medical students had the most myopic vision I've ever seen. They knew nothing about the world. They certainly didn't know anything about art, which was fine. And a friend of mine said, why are you just doing this for medical students? Why aren't you doing this for people who really need good observation skills? I said, like whom? He said, like cops. Why aren't you doing this for homicide investigators and domestic violence counselors? And I thought, I don't know. So I made a cold call to the NYPD. That's what I heard. I heard you made a cold call and how you got a bunch of cops into an art museum is beyond me. But let me go go back just one second. One of the things you said in your TED Talk, even you're talking about medical students. And I remember you saying the way they looked at art gave them the tools to be empathetic with their patients to watch for the interaction between characters in the painting that they walk into and treat them as humans before you treat them as patients. But yeah, tell us, tell, let's go back to that. Tell us about that cold call. It's quite a leap from art history into criminal investigation. So I'm anxious to see how (laughs) you were able to pull that off. It really was a huge leap and I wasn't sure that I could pull it off. But when I called the police academy here in New York City, the training academy, you can imagine the guy at the switchboard Who's he going to send me to? And he sent me to seven different people. (laughs) And I ended up with a deputy commissioner who was listening. And that's the first skill that I teach in the art of perception. He really listened to what I had to say. And I knew that he got it because he asked me a profound question. He said, Ms. Herman, if this is such a visual thing we're talking about, why are we on the phone? (laughs) And I said, he gets it. And if you fast forward six months, six months of bureaucracy, I had my first group of newly promoted captains coming to the Frick Collection. How, what was that like? It was nerve wracking because, you know, you don't think of museums and police officers together. And I said, you know what, we're going to break new ground here. And I knew that I had the deputy commissioner behind me. And he said, well, I don't know who to bring before we start the, the captain's class. So he brought representatives from each of the departments. He brought Uh, domestic violence, he brought homicide, he brought special victims, he brought all these different people. And then they had arguments among themselves about who should take this class because it was applicable for all of them. Right, right. I can just, I envision this conversation within the police department where they were like, I'm not going, you're going, you know, and it kind of got passed down. No, I I do police training here in Dallas. And I I could just see those guys if I said, yeah, we're going to the art museum. But And they're thinking, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Commissioner Fife had my back and he said to them, let's give her a morning. Let's do this. And they came to the museum and I remember the guards looking at me. We had never had weapons in the museum before. And I took them upstairs and it changed all of our lives, that meeting. It changed all of our lives. They left with a new sense of how they can help their clearance rates, how they can think about investigations, how they can rethink their whole approach to community relations. And I left thinking, 
I have a whole new audience in this museum. That is absolutely fabulous. So do you have a sense that when they did walk away, they were thinking in terms of their systems of, like you say, clearing cases or getting the job done? Or when, when along the way did they realize, oh my gosh, this could save lives, this could help victims? I think their, their heads were spinning in both directions. I think because police training is so data-oriented and we have crime stat you know, here in uh, New York City, and it's so objective-oriented that I was presenting something that was right-brained. That was the idea of using skills that they use every day, looking, analyzing, investigating, but just putting it in a different compartment. And I think the idea of stepping away from traditional training was really appealing to them. And we went back and forth for a long time about how the different units could incorporate this training so it was not just a one-off. So it was something that they could rely on. And we really built, I built a relationship that is etched on my heart with the New York City Police Department. And uh, by the time I left the Frick Collection and started doing this full-time, I was working with 13 different divisions of the NYPD. That is fabulous. That is really fabulous. You know, in your book, uh, Visual Intelligence, you break down the four steps to using the art of perception, mm -hmm. uh, specifically uh, assess and analyze and articulate and adapt. Would you walk mm -hmm. us through those four steps and let us Absolutely. know, um, how, you know, what they are and how to put those into practice when investigating a crime? Absolutely. The thing that makes the four A's so easy is we're already doing them. But any time that you have a new crime, you have a new interrogation, you have a new case, you have any new situation, you practice the four A's and I give people the tools to actually put them into practice and tie in observation and perception. So the first one is assess. Any new case, we have to decide, okay, what do I have in front of me? What is my information? What's happening here? I've arrived at the crime scene. But even before we do that assessment, we have a call on the radio. What have you heard already? What have you formed in your mind about what you're gonna see when you get to the crime scene? Then you arrive and you say, okay, I need to analyze. And this is all in a very short amount of time. I'm gonna analyze what I'm looking at. What can I get rid of? How do I prioritize? What do I retain and who do I need to talk to? So one of the exercises when we look at a painting is if you needed to find out from any person in this painting what was happening, who would it be? That's part of the analysis. Then the third prong is to articulate. Tell your team, tell your partner, send an email, send a text, make a note to yourself about what those observations are, what was your assessment, what was your quick analysis, and then the fourth A is how am I gonna adapt my behavior or how am I gonna act and make a decision? So we assess, we analyze, we articulate, and we act or adapt based on the situation. And these are things that law enforcement professionals and people in the intelligence community, they do them already. But what the tools that I want to give them to do them more effectively is to think about the words that they choose to articulate. And when someone asks a question, how can they better respond within that paradigm? And it, not only does it make it clearer for investigations, but for writing reports, and it gives people a foundation for critical inquiry, which is so important in all aspects of law enforcement. As you worked through that process with these police officers, what did mm -hmm. what feedback did they give you with regards to what are they thinking as they're going to that crime? Well, before they begin to assess, they're assessing what they expect to find, right? right? What feedback did they give you? Well, it's very interesting because when they first come into my session, as you suggested so accurately, they're sitting in my session with their arms crossed thinking, what the heck am I doing yeah. here? Yeah. What art with this woman who talks fast? 
And then as I go through the slides and I show them what they're looking at and how we talk about it and what did they miss, the arms come down and I watch this light go on over their heads. And they're, I know what they're thinking because they've told me afterwards, they're thinking, hey, she's talking about what I do every day. She's talking about how I look at a crime scene. She's talking about how I question witnesses. She's talking about my overloaded schedule and how do I keep this straight? So what I tell all my law enforcement participants is, I don't do what you do. I wanna give you the tools to do what you do better. And so we talk about the role of those four A's in every aspect of crime investigation, from when you hear about it on the radio to you get there to filing the report, to subsequent questioning, and uh, sometimes all the way to trial. How do we deal with this? And so those skills of observation and perception are inextricably intertwined to those four A's. And so by showing them works of art and talking about them, we can really work on those underlying skills. Well, the works of art are so effective. I've heard you say that don't just look at what's there, but look at what's not there. And That's I think uh, uh, some of the art that you use as examples is it's so amazing to, to help us understand that. So you're very much steeped in uh, training the New York Police Department and these other law enforcement agencies. But does, do these things, do these four A's apply to different professions? For example, I'm a social worker. I run a domestic violence shelter here in Dallas. I've got counselors working for me. I've got advocates working for me. How do these four A's, how is it applicable to their professions? To give you a perfect example that is so timely right now, one of my favorite groups to work with, I train trauma nurses. And when I train trauma nurses, you think about those four A's and they are accelerated. But one of the things I love about working tra with trauma nurses, they're on the front lines. They're dealing with patients, families, colleagues, and usually exigent circumstances in the emergency room. And when you think that they, of all people, have to step back, take a deep breath and say, okay, what's happening here? We need to assess very quickly who's going to stay in the room, who needs to get out of the room. What am I noticing about the patient? What am I not noticing about the patient? Why aren't they breathing quickly? Why aren't they bleeding if they've been shot in three different places? And so the four A's are applicable and flexible. I work in the medical profession. As I said, I worked with doctors, but working with nurses, I work with surveillance agents in the intelligence community because when surveillance agents are working and they're watching people day after day after day, frankly, it can get boring. And you can lose your edge because you're watching people all the time. Have expectations. What are you not seeing? What expectations were met? Which ones weren't? So when we're talking about terrorism, we're talking about deceptive practices. We're talking about counterterrorism. These four A's are malleable enough and loose enough that we can apply them across the professional spectrum. No, I absolutely agree. We will have a lot of advocates listening and counselors listening to this podcast. And I think it's so important for them to understand this is not just another client that came in. This is not not just another hotline. You know, even when they call, I think what you were saying about who should be in the room, who might be listening, you know, and really looking past just what we're hearing for sure. It's absolutely sure. true. And one of the things I've trained 911 operators and people said, well, how could you train 911 operators? You're in the visual world and they're on the phone. I said, when we're talking about nuance and detail and you are listening to someone's voice, you know, if they're nervous, you can tell if someone's in the room and that information directs you on how to ask your questions. You know, you've not used the word trauma, but everything we do at Genesis is trauma informed from the way we answer the phone 
to mm -hmm. the way we rock our babies to the way we do our counseling and our advocacy. And we have come a long way in the domestic violence movement with regards to how to approach clients. We use different words. We used to use what we call a medical model where mm -hmm. a woman would come in and basically say, I can't eat, I can't sleep, and I cry all the time. And we'd say, well, here's a pill. We'll make it better. Come back and see me a week. In other words, we'll get you a job. We'll get you a protective order. We'll get you an apartment, and you'll be better. What we know now is we don't ask what's wrong with you. We ask what has happened to you, and we begin to walk beside that. But I'm amazed at how many people not only do not have the perception of that, the impact of trauma on a survivor of violence, but even those who are supposed to, frontline people, shelter, hotline folks, 911 operators, and of course investigators. So I really, really applaud what you're doing. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, you talked about implicit bias. What does that mean? Implicit biases, you know, there are all different kinds of biases. And I think the the two that worry me the most are the anchor bias, which is the human tendency to believe what we see or hear first is true. That's a scary one. What did you and call that bias? The anchor bias. Anchor bias. Uh -huh. You're anchored in what you heard. Yeah, yeah. You hear something so you believe it's true, when in many cases it's not, as we know from, from living in the world that we live in. And the second one that worries me is the confirmation bias. And many, many police officers have come back to me and said, we are subject to confirmation bias the way regular people are, are subject to implicit bias. It is so deeply ingrained. Confirmation bias, for an ex as an example, is you have two cops in the car. They get a call on the radio. They need to go to a crime scene, shooting, someone's dead, and they get the whole set of facts over the radio. In their minds, they've done it so many times, they've already formulated what it's going to look like when they get there. They know what they're going to do, who they're going to talk to, and how they're going to operate because they're good seasoned cops. The problem is when you have this, you look for what you believe happened, and that's what you're trying to confirm, hence confirmation bias. The problem is you could have a whole different set of facts when you get there, and the visuals are not going to match the image in your head. And you need to be open to that to say, this is not what I expected to encounter. Because in the process of confirming your own bias, you're going to miss what you need to find. But implicit biases are attitudes or stereotypes that affect us in an unconscious way. We have attitudes, everyone has them. Everyone has implicit biases. And whether it's a product of our upbringing or uh, our education, we all have implicit biases. I can't change anyone's biases, Jan. I can't, and it's not really my objective. All I wanna do is make people aware of their biases. And if I can make them aware in so many aspects of our work, awareness is the first step to correcting something. If someone is, has an implicit bias and someone points it out to them and says, you know, I've noticed this about you, just make them aware. And then maybe they'll step back and think, I need to rethink what I'm doing. So biases are everywhere, both positive and negative. And the anchor bias, the confirmation bias, the implicit biases, we need to constantly be aware of them. But we're never going to eradicate biases, nor do I believe we should. They're what guides us to doing our work in the most effective way. I just think your work is absolutely fascinating. If I can kind of veer off just for a second, in your TED Talk, you gave an example of the two clocks. Yes. That were in perfect, it's an, a piece of art. I'm not sure who, who created it. it was, yes. But it's, they're absolutely side-by-side, battery-operated mm -hmm. clocks that were in sync. And mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you to describe it because sure. it, all of a sudden, it's not what I saw. It was your work took me to a whole new level of thinking about it. It wasn't what I saw. It's what I needed mm -hmm. to deduce from that. 
I is that right? Thank you. That's so nice to hear. I'm glad that it resonated with you because it's the simplest work of art when you look at it. And it's two clocks that are on the wall. And as you said, they're battery operated. And the artist has since passed away. But by his own terms, he said, you can never alter these works of art and they have to be in perfect synchronicity at all times, hour, minute, and second hand. So I raise the question with my audience and I say, how can you do that? When two clocks are battery operated, what's gonna happen? One of those batteries is gonna run down because nobody can guarantee that two batteries are gonna have exactly the same life. But if you can't take the batteries out, how do you make sure that the clocks are in perfect synchronicity and the time is the same? And the answer is, there is no answer. The answer is you need to have a contingency plan. The fact that we even have to have this conversation, do I put fresh batteries in in the morning? Do I watch the clocks all day? Do we change the batteries multiple times? The fact that we even have that conversation means that you have to have a contingency plan in mind. And by way of analogy, I tell my law enforcement professionals always have plan B, even when you don't think you need it because Look what's happened to us in our world right now. Look what's happened in this pandemic. And I'm pointing around at New York City. This city has come to a standstill. Who had plan B? It reminds me of the days after 9-11. And so 9-11 taught us the lesson. We need to have plans B, C, and D. Contingency should not just be at the back of our minds. We need to move it to the forefront. Don't you think that plan B advice, though, would be really great advice for survivors of domestic violence? You know, so often Absolutely. they are just looking at the painting as a whole. I've got to get dinner on the table. I've got to get that shirt ironed right. I've got to, you know, right. squirrel some money away. But if they can step back and look at the big picture and realize the battery is going to run out at some point. Absolutely. But we get so bogged down in just trying to survive it, I guess. It's such a great analogy though, but one thing that I will add to it is not only do I believe that survivors and victims of domestic violence need to look at the big picture, they also have to focus in on the small details for their own survival. What am I gonna do? What do I need to do to survive until tomorrow until I can get that help? What do I need to say and do and not antagonize? What do I need to not do to make sure that I survive? So it's big picture and small details. And that's what we do when we're looking at a painting. Tell me everything you see, but then I'm going to point out what you missed. And if we can train the trainers, if we can have the counselors and the social workers work with those survivors to show them that it's not just what's happening in the next 20 minutes, hour or half an hour, what are you going to do tomorrow? Then we can start to give them tools to empower them to get out of those. Situations. I think you're so right. I think we need to look at the survivors, if they can look at the nail heads and the string right now, more important now while they're quarantined with possibly abusive partners. This, that advice was just perfect and probably more applicable now than ever as they are facing the risk of being at home with an abusive Absolutely. partner. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that inspired me, there are a number of things that have come out of this pandemic that have inspired me, but one of them, uh, I saw Kristen Gillibrand on television probably about a week and a half ago, and she was talking about domestic violence in this exact situation where the constraints of being quarantined in the home and that financial constraints and possibly not having enough food and kids not being in school is only going to exacerbate the situation. So her goal was to incorporate in the bill relief for these homes to de-escalate some of those other ancillary situations. We can't all attack the domestic violence that's going to happen right now, but let's de-escalate the things that are going to 
aggravated. Let's get financial relief. Let's get additional food benefits. Let's get you know, daycare for kids going so that we can de-escalate some situations. It's looking at the big picture, anticipating what could happen. And that comes with broad vision. And I was really glad to hear her say that. Amy, that's great information to have. You know, you mentioned the word inspiration. Um, in your book, you reference a lot of examples with the literary character Sherlock Holmes. Is he your, <laughs> is he your inspiration? Um, <laughs> you know, what about that character? He is one of my inspirations, but not for the reason most people think. I love how the character of Sherlock Holmes was able to see what wasn't there and how he was able to communicate in this fluid, seamless way. Of course, you understood that X didn't happen. And I thought, well, maybe I knew that X didn't happen, but I didn't think to say it. And he had this sort of indirect sense of knowledge. And the other thing that I admire about Sherlock Holmes that is applicable to everyone that I work with across the professional spectrum is clarity in communication. There was never a question of what he was saying. He always used the right words. I'm a big believer in less is more. And my teaching of visual thinking grew out of this. How can I combine that idea of clarity of thinking and clarity of communication to get the job done? That is the objective, to do our jobs more effectively, less is more, ask less of people so they can produce more. I think that's great. You know, I want to take just a second to uh, let our listeners know your website, visualintelligencebook.com. Is that that's the best way to get in touch with you? <laughs> yes, that, the, actually the best way is artfulperception.com. Artfulperception.com is right. the best way to get in touch right. with Amy. Visual Intelligence Book is about my book information. They can reach me at either of those. But if they're interested in reading about the program itself, artfulperception.com is the best way to get to it. Perfect. Well, in the visualintelligencebook.com, you actually offer an online quiz to test perception mm -hmm. skills. Now, I'm going to be real transparent here. I'm, putting, I'm getting myself here out on a limb. Um, <laughs> I think of myself, Amy, as really a pretty insightful person. I think I'm, you know, quite obviously, I, I, I try to tune into issues. I analyze. I try to articulate. And I scored four. <laughs> I don't have any idea what a penny looks like, and I have no idea what's, you know, the color on the top of the flag. And so what does that say about my skill, and is there hope for me? <laughs> well, I'll start backwards and tell you there's absolutely definitely hope oh, for yay. you. Oh, yay, good. <laughs> and you're in very good company. Many, many people do not do well on that quiz. And the reason I, I'm sort of tongue-in-cheek when I give the quiz, because it's a very gentle prod to say, okay, so we don't know what the penny looks like. But a penny is not a life and death situation. But looking at small details, especially when it comes to domestic violence and survivorship, sometimes those small details are the difference between life and death. Yes. And noticing that the child is wearing the same clothes they were wearing the day before, noticing a child's teeth, that they've never been to a dentist. Sometimes those small details are illustrative and revealing of a much bigger picture. So I try to engage people in that quiz not to get the right answers, but to make them aware of other things that they might be missing. And I do it myself. I'm always looking around. An example, again, in the pandemic, I do have to leave. We're all on quarantine in New York City. But when I do leave my apartment, I never noticed how many homeless people were on the street until everyone else went home. And the way that I know that someone is homeless is they're not wearing a mask. They don't have masks. They don't have sanitary procedures. They don't have hygienic places to go and wash their hands. 
And everybody that I noticed on the street that didn't have a mask was homeless or the other way around. And so it's the idea of noticing and being able to convert observable details into actionable knowledge. And how do we take what we observe and turn it around and be able to act more effectively, whether in our professional capacity or our personal capacity? So the quiz, as I said, is a tug-in-cheek mechanism that when people say I did terribly, I say that's actually a good thing. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. It will make you more aware of the things that you're missing. Well, I tell you, I would notice uh, just, and I've been doing this work for 30 years, but I would notice a child who wore clothes the same, the same clothes a couple of days. I would notice not going to the dentist. Those are the kinds of things. It's almost like I can zero in on that. But again, the trivia, I just don't pay attention to. Uh, one of the things, and I, I want to remind you of a photograph that you share through a lot of the work that you do. It's the, the picture of the woman walking down past a bench. It looks to me like it was a riverside, and you're looking through an arch through to the other side of the riverside, and what we failed to notice was this giant sea. It wasn't an right. arch. It wasn't a... It was literally the giant sea in the picture, and it, it said 50% failed to notice that giant sea, but it, it was called inattentional blindness, where That's we correct. miss the larger picture and the important piece of the information. Will you talk a bit about that? Absolutely. The photograph that you're referencing, I took from the New York Times, and it was just, it caught my eye. I'm always looking for pictures and artwork that are going to be good for discussion, conducive to good discussion. And I saw this picture, as you said, and it was a woman walking by sort of a, it was a big, tall rocks, big expansive rocks. And on the rocks was a big blue letter C that was painted there by Columbia University because below the rocks is a river and anybody that's rowing in the river, they know what territory they're in, it's Columbia University. But what struck me about the photograph is I used it in one of my classes and I said, okay, just write one sentence to describe what you see. I couldn't believe it when not only did I read the sentences, but we were discussing it, 50% of the people who, we were all looking at the same photograph, did not see the letter C. And what was even more interesting is the people that saw it, saw it right away. Really? Be sitting next to somebody looking at exactly the same photograph and have a completely different takeaway of what it is that you observed. And I don't worry so much about the C, but what happens when there are two people at the crime scene? What happens when there are two people that go to a well-being call? What did they notice in the apartment? And did they walk away with fundamentally different perceptions of what they just observed? And so I use that as an illustration. And people in my class, I hear them, what do you mean you don't see the letter C? Right. And other people are completely blinded. And I say, take this exercise and take that out into the world with you. And remember, no two people see anything the same way. That's so, so true. Hey, I hear tell you have a new book coming out. Will you give us a, a peek into what that is? Yes, I will. I'm very excited about it. And this pandemic is giving me a lot of time to stay home and write. The book is about problem solving. Uh, I started when I wrote about visual intelligence, how can we look at works of art to enhance our observation and perception skills and how we see the world around us. And my next book is how looking at more complex works of art and looking at abstract works of art can help solve the problems that we are encountering in our lives every day. And one thing we're not short of now is problems. And so I wanna give people the tools to handle not only the problems that they know are part of their work, but the unforeseen problems, like how do we deal with the myriad situations we're encountering in this pandemic? So it's about fixing 
It's called the working title is fixed, the fine art of problem solving. And I'm really excited to be writing it. When will that be out? We're looking hopefully at the spring of 2021. Good, good. I can't wait to get a copy. I'm going to be asking at Conference on Crimes Against Women 2021 for your autograph on that, okay? (laughs) Fair enough? Wonderful. Fair enough. Amy, we are ending each of the podcast series events with what we're calling a lightning round. Three quick little questions that we're asking everybody, and there's no right or wrong answer. Maybe I'll give you a score. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Here's another quiz. No, these are easy questions. I just want to, I just want to ask you off the top of your head, is there a word or a phrase you would wish people would stop using or one that you'd like to see added to people's vocabulary? What would that be? A word or a phrase? Just I'd like people to take the word obviously out of their vocabulary. Wow. Okay. Tell me about that. Because we live and work in a complex world. And when someone says, well, obviously it's this, what if I don't know why it's obvious? And the truth is very little is obvious and even less is clear. So I ask people to take that word out of their vocabulary and say, you know, it appears to me to be a case of X because of Y and Z, instead of saying, well, obviously it's X. Right. That way we encourage dialogue We leave the door open to questions, and we're also seeking to broaden our own perspective by inviting other people to tell us what they see. So I would strike the word obviously when we really should not be using it. So second question, you are so fun and so outgoing, but (laughs) what do you do, and I can see the wheels turning as, as we're talking today, what do you do to combat burnout? Do you have burnout? You know, I'm, I'm really fortunate I don't have burnout because I love my work so much. And I knew I loved my work before, but now that it's come to a hard stop, you know, in person because of this pandemic, I realize how much I enjoyed contributing and uh, helping people do what they do. But to try to clear my head and think, I like to exercise. I I can't really leave the building, so I walk the stairwells in my building 40 (laughs) flights a day. Uh, And I'm also a bread baker. Uh, It anchors me to the kitchen, there's instant gratification, and there's something about working with my hands that's very appealing. I think that's great. I'm a baker as well. Tell me your last loaf of bread that you baked. I have a sourdough starter. Do you? That's not easy to do. It is. And now that I'm home all the time, I can keep feeding it. So I made two loaves of sourdough rye this week. Good for you. Good for you. (laughs) You are are my idol, that's for sure. Hey, um, (laughs) what inspires you? That's our third question. What inspires you? That's an easy one. The world of art inspires me. Uh, And I know that sounds hackneyed and I'm sure everybody knew that would be my answer, but it never, ever, ever gets old, Jan. I never get tired of looking. I, I think it's the best chronicler of the human condition, good, bad, ugly, indifferent. And I love to see the world through other people's eyes and art has given me the gift to be able to do that. So It inspires me every day, and I just want to share that inspiration and joy in the work that I'm doing. I feel so much the same. Aren't we lucky to get to do the work that inspires us? Aren't we lucky to be able to make a difference? And and certainly you are. Amy, will you remind us one more time where people can find you? Absolutely. My website is Artful Perception, uh, www.artfulperception.com, and information about my book is at visualintelligencebook.com. And if you Google me, it's kind of frightening. If you just Google Amy Herman, I'm out there. You'll find me. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Amy, I want to thank you so much for helping us launch this podcast on crimes against women. 
You know, in this country, 31 million crimes are reported every single year, and that's one every second. That's 20, oh. every 24 minutes, there's a murder. Every five minutes, there's a rape. Every two to five minutes, there's a sexual assault. Every nine seconds in this country, a woman is assaulted as she is battered in her home by someone who tells her that he loves her, by someone who tries to tell us it's her fault, and by someone who also tries to tell us it's none of our business. It is certainly my hope, uh, because of this conversation, that a woman assaulted today will have a law enforcement response that will let her know that this is a crime and will be treated as a crime. It's my hope that because of this conversation, a homicide will be investigated with new eyes and fresh techniques and resources. I, I hope there's a cold case sexual assault that will be solved. Because of this conversation, victims of forced prostitution will not be invisible. And so I, I thank you for that. I want our listeners to know that through this podcast, we'll be learning and being inspired by the very best. And Amy Herman, you definitely are the very um, best. And so thank you for helping us with this new awareness to better be able to assess and analyze and articulate and adapt. I want to just compliment you one more time uh, in one of the things you have worked on, and that's the work of art that's the brick build, the brick wall. Yes. And the work by Kafka, the El Castillo, that is just that pee under the mattresses, right? That that's has exactly caused, what it is. That has caused a ripple right up the middle. And I want to applaud you. That's exactly what you've done in your work. You have created a ripple that I know will have long-lasting effects. So thank you for thank joining you. with us. And we look forward to having you in person next year. Thank you. I am supporting everything you do. So thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and good luck with the rest of the conference. Thank you so much. Take care and stay healthy, okay? You too. Okay. Be well. Thank you. To learn more about this topic and other issues impacting crimes against women, visit conferencecall.org. That's conferencecaw.org. And you can find us on social media at National CCAW. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, Stay safe. Interested in learning more about the topics you've heard on this podcast? Listeners of the podcast on crimes against women can receive $25 off of registration to the 34-part web series beginning on June 2nd. Visit www.conferencecaw.org register and enter podcast 25, that's podcast 25 at checkout.